morning church if you guys would please turn your bibles to philippians chapter 4 verses 8 through 9 that'll be our text this morning philippians chapter 4 verses 8 through 9 i read from the new american standard bible and it says paul being the speaker finally brethren Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. It's best to practice what you learn, and there's no other better explanation that I can think of in my pursuit of trying to learn my wife's language of Portuguese. It's been two long years, and it hasn't gone quick enough, but I know one thing from my learning. No matter the amount of words I memorize, the vocabulary I look at, the textbooks I read, it's never as good as when I put that into practice by going and immersing myself in the culture and speaking in the market with her family and with everybody. And like many efforts of the Christian, our mindset should be not only mental, but also physical. And that's what we're learning here today, is that the Christian mindset is one that is mentally tasking and also practically tasking for the sake of peace in the church. That's our aim and our goal today, is that we would have peace in the church, not anxiety. And the book of Philippians was wrote wrote by the Apostle Paul so that we would actually have joy no matter the circumstances, no matter the threats, no matter the location of where we're ministering to. Paul writes from a prison in shackles. Just like he wrote the book of Ephesians, these are all the prison epistles. We understand that we are to pursue joy, and Paul gives us two ways to do that, particularly the Christian mindset is to be pursued mentally, as we see in chapter 4, verse 8, and also practically in chapter 4, verses 9. If you'd look at chapter 4, verse 8 with me again, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell On these things. One thing you're going to see in particular with these two verses is that they're weighted in the command verbs at the end of each verse. So the command in verse 8 is dwell on these things at the end. The command in verse 9 is practice these things. So we look at each one of these descriptive characteristics of the Christian mindset by looking at it as if we were to read dwell on whatever is true, dwell on whatever is honorable, dwell on whatever is pure, and etc. And verse 9, we look at them in the same way as practice whatever is learned, practice whatever is received, practice whatever is heard, practice whatever is seen. So we live the Christian life not only in mind, but in practice, not only mentally, but practically. And that, in its context, is to the brother in the local church of the body of believers. We see here that Paul has the church of Philippi in mind, but the application reaches all the way to 2022 today for us. 
that we would be Christians who pursue peace practically and mentally. And we want to do that here today by looking at each individual one of these words as we do kind of a collective word study of the Christian's mindset. First, mentally in verse 8 as we look at it. What does it mean to dwell on these things? Paul uses a list of virtues here that was also found in other places in the Greco-Roman Empire. If you look at ancient literature, you'll see these, some of these listed as well. But they're not in the way that society would ring them true as if they're a list from a school reading a pledge. These are Christianized words. Dwell on what God would see in his approval as you live out mentally in the church. These words for dwell, or the word for dwell, was the idea of mathematically computing, bringing things to their cognitive process and taking them in a way that would get to a result. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 4, verse 6, of God crediting, that same word there, credit is dwell, righteousness apart from works. God has reckoned us this task. He has given us the task to dwell, to count these things, to consider them, to reason and make plans so that we can process and progress in our mental state in the Christian mindset. These are to be in the accordance with the salvation and the event of it in our lives that we can only process these things. We can only mentally fulfill each one of these if we have had that event of salvation happen in our lives in our very own day. We have to understand that this passage is for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, then you won't be able to have the mental game of Christ or the practical game of Christ. But if you're a Christian, this is possible for you today. It's possible to live in accordance with what Paul has set out before us. It's possible to see Christ as our example who had this attitude in himself. Philippians 2 verse 5. And this should be our very meditation ourselves as we look into each one of these words in the mental game. We look to have this upon our hearts, to dwell upon them, to meditate upon them, not in the sense of the Eastern mystics who would empty their mind from a sense of meditation, but filling our mind with each one of these words so that we know the direction of our mental course. Spurgeon said of the thoughts of a Christian, what the Christian dwells on, he said this, and I quote, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. What have you been thinking about? What have you been dwelling on? What has been causing you anxiety can be stopped and it can be mentally changed if you dwell on these things. So, we dwell on first, whatever is true. That is the first of the mental games, whatever is true. He uses this whatever sequence six times and it's to mean emphasis with each word. There are ways the Greek language could reference whatever and then list the words off and you would apply whatever to each one. But he specifically repeats the word in this passage to bring emphasis for each word that the whole mind collectively needs to be meditating on all of these. Whatever is true is the first one for us here today as we develop the Christian mindset mentally. This is the quantity of truth that we have in Scripture. The vast 
chasm that is revealed in Scripture, the treasure trove of truth, not the relative truth that we have in society. Hey, you be you and me be me. Whatever you want to believe is fine, man, as long as you don't approach on my belief. You've heard those things before. In the relative world we live in, in the postmodern world we live in, it's no longer the leave-it-to-beaver life that we have in the United States. Everybody's living on their own truth. And how dare you if you post to their Facebook account page. (laughs) But we have a sense of truth. We have the source of truth. We know the sense of uprightness according to the truth of Scripture. We know what's in accordance with scriptural fact like Christ. We know that this word is so pertinent in the Gospel of John. The most occurrences are in the Gospel of John to reveal the truth that Christ came to reveal eternal life in his deity and his essence. And if we just looked at John for two things that we could dwell on as we seek to live out whatever is true, we could look at the life of the Samaritan woman who was true when she assessed her life in sin. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 18, she said, I have no husband. Just a few verses earlier. And then John chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus replied, you have told the truth. We've got to tell the truth about our own sinful state, that we're totally depraved that we're completely without any capacity to move in the direction of God, that apart from God's righteousness or grace or mercy, we would be left in shackles at the bottom of the ocean without any way of escape. But according to his mercy, according to his grace, he has given us what we don't deserve and has not given us what we do deserve, judgment. And we can enter into the throne room and say, I believe in Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That is true. That is exactly what Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John and other places in the New Testament. We also know that we can arrive at the source of truth by living according to Scripture. It says in John 17, verse 17, the same word, sanctify them in the truth. Definite article there, important. Your word is truth. We know what we stand for as Christians. We don't have a sense of un promising truth or relative truth but we have a sense of a firm foothold we're not like those who the anonymous writer wrote of this those who stand for nothing are apt to fall for anything instead we stand for the truth upon scripture we stand for something that actually brings eternal life that's what we can dwell on today in many other ways Well, mentally, not only are we to dwell on what is true, but to dwell on what is honorable. Look at verse 8 again with me. Dwell on whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is dignified, serious, an old word would be venerable, whatever is above reproach, whatever is conducting ourselves in accordance with God's standard. This would have been seen in the Greek culture to be the conduct, perhaps, of the Roman soldier conducting himself, making impressions upon society in a favorable way for the collective being. But Paul sees it in the eyes of God. What would God see as honorable? What would God see as above reproach? What would God deem as venerable? We see that we should conduct ourselves in the church this way, a serious way. A noble way, a way of worthy of reverence, no matter the cost. This word is used actually similarly in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 and 11 of deacons. They're to be 
men of dignity, women dignified. We see that we are to be honorable from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Love does not act dishonorably. We see that we have an example in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 as well, that he, Paul himself saw it honorable not only to believe in God when things are good, but to believe in God when suffering is the result. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 through 30 reads this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. We respect men that not only live when it's good, but live when it's hard. Paul writes this in shackles from a prison. He demonstrated what is honorable. He didn't compromise the truth for the sake of revealing himself and, and getting rid of the shackles in his own life. He didn't care about his own life. He cared about the reigning glory of Christ in his life. Well, not, are we, not only are we to mentally pursue whatever is true or mentally pursue whatever is honorable, but mentally pursue whatever is pure. Sorry, whatever is right is our next word. Whatever is right. There's some degree here that is quoted from other secular sources, but Paul is indeed Christianizing each and every word, and this one rings true more than any other of them. What is right, what is in accordance with the will of God, the highest standards of what is right. And here he had the idea of the measure, the standard, the canon. The word canon actually means the standard. We understand that it's not just upholding societal norms and customs as it would have meant to the Greek listener or to the Roman listener, like respecting the old or letting the lady sit down before you sit down if you're younger or letting the elderly person sit down before you. Not what's right in the sense of societal norms, but what's right in the sense of God, in the sight of God. Our obligation in view of certain requirements of practicing the mental game of a Christian. And how more should we practice that than our example from Philippians itself? When Paul himself looked to dwell on whatever is right, he viewed it right for him to dwell on the partaking of the gospel with other Christians. If you look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, he says this, verse 6, or sorry, we'll start in verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, and then jump down to verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. That's our goal, to be able to dwell on whatever is right, and that includes dwelling on the partaking of gospel partnership with other Christians. That was certainly dwelling on the heart of Paul, and that should be dwelling on our hearts as well. We have another beautiful example of the book that we've been spending so much time in from Pastor Clay's wonderful exposition of Ephesians, Children's Obedience. It is said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right to do so. We, as Christians, try to dwell on what is right. 
While mentally we try to exercise the faculty of dwelling on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, but also whatever is pure. The idea here is morally blameless. In the Old Testament, this is used a lot to mean externally blameless, but in the New Testament, this word is always used to mean morally pure. The inner heart. The inner emphasis on reverence for God and its practice and purity without blemish. It's the idea that you have a clear conscience. It's the idea that the wisdom you get from above will first be pure, James 3, 17 and onward. It's the idea of innocence in one's attitude towards the church and towards other Christians. You have an innocent, pure, blameless thought life about those that you do Christianity with. We get this same word as the idea of the blameless, pure charge of the gospel in Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, I'll start in verse 15, but it says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, for the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. When we're partaking of the gospel and proclaiming it and doing ministry of gospel ministry, we need to be pure in our motives. That's where we can start. We don't want to find something to be blamed for. We want to be irreproachable, un blameworthy we want to make sure that our lives are above reproach in society we've tried to aim at this particular measure in many different ways and in particular the federal criminal law system has tried to give 5,000 statutes and 300,000 regulations to aim at an innocent society a pure society but not one has improved our idea of what is right in the eyes of God We know what is right because we have the source of what is right. Scripture reveals that in the life of Paul. It reveals it in the life of Christ. And we have an idea of what we can be pure in our mind as a result of their lives as well. Well, mentally, we're not only to be true, honorable, right, pure, but also lovely. Look with me at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 again as we go back to our passage. What is lovely? Root here comes from the word philos. It's that idea of friendly love. It's the idea that a Christian friend would love what he sees going on in your life. Not be displeased with it, but be pleased with it. Not be disagreeable with it, but be agreeable with what's going on in your life. This is so true of when you go out and witness to people, they ask, one of the second questions I ask if somebody professed to be a believer, I say, what church are you partaking in? Because I want to know that people in their life are approving and agreeable to the actions of their life. That's what we want. We want a life that's lovely, that's pleasable to other Christians who are living according to Scripture. We want to give satisfaction to other Christians in our pilgrimage. We want to cause pleasure and delight in other Christians. We want to be lovely. Paul is a great example of this when he said to the Philippians that even though you're having so many difficulties in life, the goal of life, what would be pleasing in life, what would be lovely in life is to do all things, Philippians 2, chapter 14, without grumbling or disputing. 
That would be lovely for us to behave in this way in the church. Well, not only are we to be mentally dwelling on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, but also whatever is of good repute. It's the idea of it's worthy of praise. What we do in our actions brings about the worthy praise of others. What we say from our lips brings about honorable praise from others. Not for the praise of us, but to the praise and the glory of God, as it says in Philippians chapter 1. The basic idea here is what is being said with cautious reserve. It's the idea that your words ought to be cautiously and carefully chosen. It's the idea that they're commendable, that they reveal what's in the heart. It's deserving approval from a good reputation of speech. It's the idea that we shouldn't be praised for what we're doing, but we should be praised because we're dwelling on what God pleases. It's the idea in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 through 21, where it connects our thoughts and what we dwell on to our lips and what we say. Follow along with me. Proverbs 10, 20, or 19 through 21 says this. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. It's not of good repute, basically. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Transitions there from the tongue to the heart. The heart reveals what you're dwelling on. We understand that as Christians. We understand that our speech is reflective of our heart. It's been said before that when you fall, you don't fall too far. That the actions of your life aren't just something that came out of nowhere, but they're reflective of what's been dwelling on your heart, what's been dwelling in your thought process. And is it of good repute? And then we transition, not to a different set or to a different list in verse 8, but to really more of a sake of argument that is in the expression of, for the sake of argument, let's assume there's even more that's excellent and there's more that we can dwell on, more that's worthy of praise. It's the idea here that he's giving a plight command now. He wants us to be persuaded That's what Paul wants us to understand from here. And the better translation of the end of verse 8 would be this. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, and let us assume that is true for the sake of argument, then dwell on these things. Paul is using a plight command here. He's telling us to continue on to dwelling and getting the mental game of a, a Christian to Dwell and continue dwelling on if anything is excellent. It's the concept of Christian virtue. It's the idea that occurs of moral excellence in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, that you supply moral excellence, that you have the God of excellence supplying you all capability to pursue this. It was the idea in the Stoic culture That's a philosophy in the New Testament times. Stoic was the word for porch in the Greek. And these were people that would stand on the porches of city centers and contemplate what is excellent, what is pure. And that's where they came up with this word for logos. That was the pure, excellent source of reasoning. But Paul Christianizes this word and he says, we're to be pursuing what is excellent because we've seen that in God, in the life of Christ. Whatever God did was excellent through the life of Christ in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. That's what we're to dwell on, to have that same attitude in us. It's the religious duty of a Christian in its excellence. And we have to be distinguished in this. It's the Greek idea of having a soldier 
being honored as he is discharged from duty, that he was honorable and excellent. He was valued. He is a man of valor. It's the idea Paul has in the book of Philippians that despite any suffering that's going on or any anxiety that's happening in the church, as we see earlier in chapter 4, that we are not going to be dishonorably discharged because we're not pursuing whatever is excellent. Instead, we pursue the excellence, the example of Christ, the virtue of Christ as pursued in his example and his attitude in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And also added on to that, if anything worthy of praise in verse 8, anything worthy of praise. It's the idea that we are not seeking the praise of others, but we're seeking the approval of others as praiseworthy because it's going to bring praise to God. It's worthy of a kind of behavior that will be approved by God and therefore approved by Christians in fellowship together. It's a covenant recognition, not of men, but of God. It's not the community attitude of praising each other for our service, but praising God for the service through us. It's the idea that whatever we do is worthy to be praised because we seek to please God, not our own selfish beings. And that's what the believers in Philippians chapter 1 didn't get as they were proclaiming the gospel out of selfish motives. We're to be selfish, selfless in our motives. <laughs> to the praise and the glory of God, Philippians 1 verse 11. We understand that we start, start this by rejoicing in what God rejoices in. And we see that beautiful example in Philippians chapter 1 verse 18 when Paul resonates with this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. We mentioned that earlier, but that's what we rejoice in. It says, Christ will even now, in verse 20, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether we live or whether we die, it's worthy of praise because it's worthy of the glory and the praise to God. It's the appropriate praise of Christ as it's revealed in the courageous discipleship and following of a Christian. We have to be pursuing whatever is worthy. And as Paul transitions to verse 9, he not only reminds us that we can mentally pursue peace, but practically pursue peace as the Christian mindset. He says this in verse 9, as we learn to practically pursue what we learn, what we receive, what we hear, what we see. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's a promise. But we have to look at a few things here. Paul is encapsulating the entire diet of the Christian as they pursue the mindset. This isn't a person who goes to the gym and just works out their biceps, but they work out their legs too. This is a person who not only eats well, but exercises well. It's carrying out these ideas collectively, wholesomely, that you don't only go and learn, but you also go and practice. That you don't only think about Christ, but you practice your thoughts of Christ. It's the idea of saying, hey, it's not too late, go now and do these things. We have to understand that as Christians, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter what stage we got saved in, or no matter if we're a Christian yet or not, today could be the day of salvation and you could start the Christian mindset. 
by believing in Christ, then setting your mindset to it mentally and now practically. It's the complete diet to be invested mentally and practically. It's all the essential elements necessary as a Christian lives out their faith. And as you think about the stage of life you're in, whether you've started all these things mentally or or practically, think of this quote from an anonymous author. It's better to look ahead and prepare than to look back and regret. And I pray that each and every one of us today would move on, move forward in practice of what we have dwelled on, what we have learned, what we have received, what we have heard, and what we have seen in the Christian life. The uh, conjunction here also tells us that each one of these are correlating to one another, that they're together and, 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 and heard, and seen, and received, and see. It's the idea that it's complete together, not complete individually. We have to understand that we can't be isolating Christians. We can't be compartmentalizing Christians. We have to bring it all together. We have to practice what we learn. We have to practice what we receive, practice what we heard, and practice what we see, not just one or the other. So as we looked at verse 8, what we do is dwell, and that's kind of weighted at the end of the verse. We understand that we're to practice, and that's weighted at the end of the verse in each one of these in verse 9 as well. And that's the idea of consistency, of consistent performance over time, of carrying out the duties of a Christian, not just failing and giving up, but continuing on. It's the idea of doing deeds that are consistent with a life who was repentant, a life that was pierced to the heart, a life manner and consistent worthy of what God has called us to do. This would have been seen in the rabbi who would have had his pupil along with him consistently memorizing and reciting and learning. And then at the time when he was ready, he would say, now go and do these things. It's the idea of a father and a son showing a particular task or chore around the house, and finally it is your son's time to go and now take these into practice. It's the idea of a person being a pupil in school, and finally after four years or six or eight years of education, now going into practice. And as I follow tennis, many of you know that, I see a great example of this, of those who continue consistently in their practice You know, somebody doesn't get up to the ranks in the world rankings of tennis or any other sport by having a couple wins here and there, but over time they consistently get points by having a persistence in their accomplishments. Some of them may even lose to uh, to, uh, somebody who's second in the world, may lose to somebody who's 90 in the world two or three times a year, but consistently and persistently they're winning overall. And that's the goal of the Christian life as we consistently put into practice what we have dwelled on. Well, the first thing we put into practice as a Christian pursuing the Christian mindset this year is we practically learn the things you have learned. Verse 9. This is to acquire information as a result of formal or informal instruction. It's the idea of that pupil sitting in the classroom. It's also that idea of the pupil coming alongside somebody in a physical duty amidst the church and learning a few nuggets here and there. Jesus particularly did this on many of his travels. He taught so that his disciples could learn. He also sat down at times and taught to them, but they learned all the while. You learn from someone. You don't just learn from nothing. You stick to what you've learned, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.14. 
Learning implies that you've received what you've learned in this verse as well, but we won't go there just yet. It's not challenged along the way. It's received humbly. And this is one of Paul's main ways of communicating what the pastor and teacher and student relationship should look like in the church. Particularly in his pastoral epistles, he uses the word learn far more than he uses the word teach. Because as we receive from pastoral training, we are learning so that we can go later to teach. But learning needs to be the start of the process. The source of that knowledge is obviously scripture for the Christian, and I hope that's obvious to you, but it wasn't always obvious to the Christians that Paul wrote to. Particularly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6-7, through 7, it wasn't obvious for those who were among the church that went into households captivating weak women, down, weighed down by sins. They were led by their various impulses, And it says this of them, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. We don't want to be that kind of Christian who learns yet never understands. Learns yet never practices. Dwells but doesn't put it into practice consistently. And the kind of knowledge is important as well. It's knowledge that is learned on practice. It's not learned just to be thought or metaphysical but to be practical. It's not just orthodoxy, but it's orthopraxy. It's not just our theology, but our practical application in life. It's the idea of Titus 2 and Titus 3. When a beautiful discipleship relationship to women, to younger women, and to older men, to younger men, is culminated in a learning that leads to good works. Look at Titus 3, verse 14, after they learned in the discipleship relationships of the women's and men's ministry of the church of Crete, they said this, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Their learning led to action, and so should it be for us. Not only are we to practically learn, but we're practically to receive We're to receive what we learn, humbly. We're to validate the claims through consistent behavior in our own lives, through making those claims ourselves, through being somebody who attests to that truth in our life and in our example. Someone who attaches themselves to a contagious example is one who has not only learned but has received. Who have you attached yourself to? Who have you mimetized yourself to, imitated It's the close association with a particular person as you go in a discipleship relationship. Maybe ask, hey, can I meet up with you? Hey, how do you deal with this situation? Because I want to learn from your example and receive it so that I can apply it. It's accepting somebody's teaching and preaching as we see here in this passage. It's the idea of what race car drivers try to do when they drag race. They try to get themselves close to somebody who's going a little faster and get their energy attached to them so they can propel themselves forward ahead of them, using somebody else's energy and excellence and what they're dwelling on to practice, to learn, and to receive in your own life. It's the idea of Paul, what he gave to the church of Corinth when he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received. We want to be a church that hears the preaching but receives the preaching in which you stand. It says that right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. If you receive, you will stand. 
We need that as an example, as a lesson for the American church and for the church worldwide, for the church globally, that we need to stand in what we have received from Scripture and not in anything else that the world has to offer. Well, not only are we practically to learn and receive and hear, sorry, but uh, learn and receive, but we're also to practically hear, to listen and pay attention to a particular person. That may mean for some of you to go into a particular Bible study, to conform to the teaching of the doctrines of grace, to be able to understand Scripture and doctrine yourself and not necessarily just trust it for somebody else, to weigh everything up from what you've heard and live it out, to pay attention and obedience, to not pay attention would be to be the example of diatrophies <laughs> in first jo- or sorry first john chapter 3 or sorry third john verse 9 it says this by diatrophies who loves to be the leader does not pay attention he doesn't hear you can't be leaders that don't hear you can't be examples that don't hear but jesus is the ultimate example who heard the will of God, and it says this in Matthew 17, verse 5, This is my own dear Son, in whom I am well pleased. Pay attention, hear him, to him, and obey him. We have an example of God who was pleasing, or Jesus who was pleasing God the Father, and we can please our ultimate example, Christ, as well, if we obey him. Well, Practically, we're not only to learn, we're not only to receive, we're not only to hear, but we're to see. As it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, to see, it means to perceive with the eyes, physically. This idea has, uh, it's the fact that you're in the open, you're at church, you're witnessing other Christians behave practically in Christ. You observe how they deal with different stressful times and circumstances in life. You have an idea of how they handle harsh treatment. You have an idea of what it looks like to deal with threats or wavering children or layoffs or house fires or loss of a loved one or disease or illness. You've seen it with your own eyes because you've set out to be out in the open. It implies that you love being amidst leaders, love being amidst those who you can imitate yourself. That's what Paul wanted them to do in Philippians as he sat in a jail setting the example for the church of Philippi that could be seen as a stressful, anxious time. He saw it as a time that would bring glory to God. That's that passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, as we read earlier. That's our example as well. We need to live as though it is our task to find peace expecting difficulty because we've seen it in the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of Paul, in the eyes of those that we love in the church. I just this week was called a false teacher (laughs) because of something that I taught in the doctrines of grace. And I need to be seen as an example in my response of that, still figuring out how I'll respond to that exactly. But we know that difficulties are coming, that people are going to claim different things about us that aren't true, but we need to be seen as examples in our practice of how we handle with others' accusations. We understand that we have to adjust to the circumstances without surrendering our convictions. And that needs to be seen in the church. We, now do, we need to be op- in the open witnessing that as we do that. And Paul gives us the direction of where we can do that, the location of where we can reference that, the target practice for our practicing 
the Christian mindset. And it is in me, he says in verse 9, in me. He gives us a reference to the speaker. Paul is the example for the church of Philippi. Paul is the example for you and I today. Paul is the object of our obedience because Christ is the object of his obedience. That's the word for mimetai in other places in the Bible, to imitate Christ, to imitate Christ through the imitation of your leaders. It's the idea of Hebrews 13, verse 7, where it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, imitate their faith. Whose faith are you imitating today? Do you have somebody in mind, a leader in the church, not just Paul, not just Christ, but somebody practically in the midst of your gathering as well? And if you do have all of these things, as it says at the end of verse 9, Philippians chapter 4, if you're pursuing mentally the Christian mindset, if you're pursuing the Christian mindset practically, then the logical conclusion is the God of peace will be with you in everything that you stand. In your anxious thoughts, in your difficult tasks, the God of peace will be with you. Favorable circumstances of an internal tranquility will be on your heart. Maybe not in your practical circumstances in life. Paul writes this from a prison in shackles and we can have the same calmness that he had in that. And the idea of this that if we all pursue the mental game of Christ, of the Christian, we all pursue the practical game of Christ, of a Christian, we will have peace and unity and joy in the church and it will be with us. As we conclude here, as we see that it is possible to have peace in this day and age. But it's also dependent upon our ability to let the Christian mindset mentally and practically dwell within our lives. We got to work cooperatively with the Spirit in this. We have to pursue sanctification. And as we Think of that. Let us conclude with this quote from another anonymous source. It is not what we eat, but what we have in digest that makes us strong. Not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. Not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned. And not what we profess, but what we practice that makes us Christian. I pray that that is what we have on our hearts today as we pursue the Christian mindset mentally and practically at Santan Bible Church. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time and for this message you've given to the Church of Philippi and de facto to us today. We thank you for an example of Paul, for an example of Christ, for all the examples you've led in this church through the leaders and elders in this church. We pray that we pursue the Christian mindset mentally and practically from this point forward. Amen.